Good morning. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Give thanks to the pastors and elders for their invitation, gracious invitation to share with you this morning. Let me just give a couple of introductory remarks. That's the pastoral way of getting a few extra points before you actually start the message. Um, One is, uh, for those who are not aware who I am, uh, I uh, am married to a wonderful woman who is not here with me. Her name is uh, Becky. We now call her Rebecca because my nephew married another Becky. Uh, And so it makes it a little complicated talking about the older Becky and the younger Becky. So anyway, she is at home in France working on what we call our Paris Prayer Conference. And that's where we have an opportunity to pray for the ministries uh, of our work in France. We invite a lot of our national brothers and sisters who share and uh, they pray for them. I also have four children. For those who have been following us, uh, the three oldest are married. uh, And the youngest, uh, Julia, who actually went to us, went with us to France when she was 10 weeks old. Yes, is now 25 and is working with Peace Corps in Costa Rica. So yes, my child grew up in France, learned French fluently, and majored in Spanish. (laughs) Second uh, is that uh, we do live in France. We live uh, near Paris. Uh, We say that because most people can't figure out where we live, nor do French people know quite where we live, but we tell them. Um, very engaged in local ministry. That was one of the reasons why, as international director, I requested to live overseas. So I work in the church where I served as an intern, which is quite a change. Uh, so they knew me as a younger person, a much younger person. So now I come back and I'm part of their team. We are not missionaries with them in that sense. We're members like anyone else. So I am actually in the preaching rotation, which is one of the reasons why I have to get back, because I preach next Sunday. So I have to get my head you know, back, turned back around in French. Uh, and also we're very engaged with a, a small house church, which one of the uh, leaders in the church is starting, as well as mentoring a number of people. I do have a, a day job also, which is international director. Sounds like an impressive title. And uh, I oversee all our teams working around the world, so I'm responsible for vision, implementation of what we say we're going to do, and leader development. So if you follow uh, with some of our prayer requests, you kind of wonder where I am, which is my father's request all the time when he calls me, where are you? And so I have to tell him whether I'm in Hong Kong, Melbourne, Australia, or Paris, France. Uh, And it's mainly to be able to be with our leaders and encourage them in the work that we're doing. There's a lot of exciting work happening. One small thing is we're signing a partnership with a network of 5,000 Chinese house churches uh, to be able to facilitate them to send workers overseas. Do you recognize that there are 70 million believers in China? That is an incredible uh, workforce. Uh, and they want to partner, partner with us to reach the world for Christ. And finally, my final uh, is just to thank you for your prayers. You are one of those churches that just is constantly praying for us. And we don't say that lightly because we know that prayer, it doesn't matter all the other things. If people are praying for you, we know that. And uh, I just think of it today because I really appreciate Amy's message in song. I don't think she has any idea what I'm going to speak on. Uh, I don't even know her. 
but her song fits right in with what I'm going to say. So I was just so blessed that he's sitting there and listening to this song and thinking, well, there goes my message right there. Um, it's very, very encouraging for to have you uh, praying for us, and we really appreciate that, and I just want to say that publicly again. You recognize that the text was already read, read and so I'd ask you to turn to it, if you can turn to it either on your in your Bible, or if you're like me, oftentimes I turn to it on my cell phone. Yes, I do use my cell phone for my Bible. I know that's maybe not the right thing to do, but when you're traveling a lot, you know, your regular Bible becomes really heavy. Um, so if you can turn to Mark 9, and that is the text, verses 14 to 29, and uh, we're going to look at that uh, together for the next couple of minutes. Now, I uh, listened here, one of the graduates, I believe it was an Apple from the Apple School, uh, is going to be working at a summer camp. Well, I worked at a summer camp for many years. In fact, I was a, I was a camper for many years at a teenage camp and then became part of the staff. And uh, when you're part of the staff, you know, there's just sort of things go on that you just, they just are engraved in your memory. And uh, we used to have a camp, we used to attend this camp where they have these massive games. I mean, I don't know if you play these anymore because most people are doing it on video or on computer. It's not the same impact. Okay, so we had one woman whose sole purpose was to create new games. Not your old games, okay? These were brand new games you'd never heard of, but she changed all the rules. Every week we would be waiting to see what crazy things she would come out with. Well, she came out with one game once, and as I said, we will never forget it. My brothers and all the people we know have never forgotten this game. And it was simply called Mission Impossible. Now, I'm not talking about the Tom Cruise movie. I'm talking about, for those who remember, the old TV series. And it was based on that. Basically, we divided a camp of over 150 to 200 campers into several teams. And each team had an impossible mission to carry out. And they were given that mission on one day. And they had to complete that mission before 10 o'clock the next morning. Now you're thinking, okay, I mean, what can be really impossible in terms of mission? Okay, you want to know a few? You had to paint a white line down the road that led into the camp of over a mile without using paint. Another group had to change all the clocks and watches. This is pre-cell phone, okay? All the clocks and watches back a half hour. Another team had to steal all the furniture out of the main administrative building. Another team had to steal every spoon out of every kitchen, you know, snack shop, everything. I mean, maybe you're not getting, but I mean, this was a total adrenaline rush. Okay, I mean, forget Red Bull. This was really, I mean, you know, now there's only one rule. And the rule was you had to do your mission without anyone else seeing you do it. Right, you get the picture. It's not as easy as you thought. That's a mission impossible. Do you imagine the next morning, 10 o'clock, we get up, you know, and we go out. There is no furniture in the admin building. Every clock is turned back. Every clock we could find 
was turned back half an hour. There's a white line down the road coming into the camp. I mean, wow. I mean, you talk about emotion. Woo! And that's when the phone rang. Telephone call was from the fellow who had created the camp. We on staff affectionately called him King George. Because when George showed up, everything had to be spick and span. Not a jot or tittle or a blade of grass out of line. Okay? George was not of the humorous type. He was of a serious nature. He was announcing his surprise visit to the camp that morning. Yeah, you got it. We're just thinking we are dead. So here he comes. Here comes George. Drives into the camp. As he's driving in, he sees a white line down the road. He's never seen a white line down the road before. He's coming up the hill to the admin building, and here are shower curtains all around the pool fence. That was another job. Pulls into the admin building. There's not a stitch of furniture in his admin building. He's looking at the clock. Clock's not right. He's checking his watch. What is going on? The repercussions from George's visit were immediate. You know, I always wonder if that is not some of what it felt like to be one of the disciples when Jesus suddenly shows up in this text. Here were the disciples faced with an impossible mission. Here this guy, is, his epileptic son is foaming and rolling on the ground. And what are they going to do? And now they're engaged in this debate with the leaders, the religious leaders, and they can't do it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus is obviously not King George, but Jesus is the King of Kings. And when Jesus comes into our lives, when his presence is felt, his real presence, it causes a ripple effect in our lives and the world around us. See, to live believing that Jesus is truly present with me is not a walk in the woods. It's an adventure. It's a journey where God consistently amazes us. He can bother us. And he puts us face to face with a decision as to whether we're going to give it all or not to him. Are we going to bet it all on Jesus or not? Now, I'm just going to I'm just going to not fly over the text, but I'm just going to give you some big picture pieces, which I hope will help you to look at the whole Gospel of Mark, which is one of my favorites, because Mark is an action-oriented guy. I mean, he cuts through the mustard, as we would say, as opposed to the other Gospel writers, and goes right for the heart of the issue. But Mark also likes to give you pointers of where he's going by the way he structures his texts and his narratives. So there's three things we want to look at. One is the fact that there's a change of perspective that goes on. There's the storm that comes before the calm. That's right. Storm before the calm, not the calm before the storm. And third, there's the faith risk, the risk of faith. Okay, so let's look at the first one. There's a change in perspective that goes on. Verse 15, and immediately 
All the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. Okay, now I'm sorry, graduates, but I mean, this is English 101. Okay, you can read this text in a variety of ways. One, you can read it by noting the idea or action of seeing. Verse 15, the crowd sees Jesus and runs to him. Verse 20, the evil spirit sees Jesus and reacts. Verse 25, Jesus sees the crowds gathering and moves to meet the young man's need. That's one way. Another way is by looking at the main character. There's the crowd, verse 14 to 16. There's the father of the young man, verses 17 to 27. Or there are the disciples, verses 28 to 29. A third way to look at this text is by Mark's favorite word. Mark has a word that he uses over and over and over again, and we miss it every time. It's immediately. Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, ran up to him and greeted him. Verse 20, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I like that way to look at this passage. Mark loves that word. Immediately, Jesus seems to arrive at the worst possible moment. I mean, we've just finished hearing about the transfiguration. Jesus on the mountain, glorified Moses and Elijah. He comes back down into the valley of life. And what does he find? The disciples engaged in a theological debate with religious rulers. Now, when Mark starts his narrative that way, you immediately think of another scenario, don't you? Moses, coming down off the mountain. You remember, he's coming down with the tablets of stone. He's coming down with Joshua, and Joshua says, what's all that noise? And Moses says, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And when they come, they find them worshiping the idol. So here comes Jesus back down into the valley. And he's seemingly unnoticed by the disciples who are, who are engaged in this theological debate. Because the disciples had a huge problem on their hands. Jesus sent his disciples out, chapter 6, verse 7, with authority called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Apparently they had some success, because verse 30 of chapter 6 says the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that he had done and taught. However, for some reason, in this narrative, they can't do it. And, and they get hit with this famous statement in verse 28, why could we not cast this demon out? Now you got to imagine... The religious authorities. I mean, imagine you're in, a, in an argument with your friend. Okay, suddenly your friend says something and you see the opportunity to pin him to the wall. Man, the religious leaders saw the door open. Here were the disciples struggling because they, they said, we have this power to heal. And boom, they can't do it. Religious authorities jump because they want to win the argument. They want to prove the disciples wrong. But then Jesus shows up. Imagine the scenario. Here's this man. 
This father, his son is rolling on the ground in an epileptic seizure. And the disciples are engaged in a theological debate. His hope is just going up in smoke. And then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus enters into the situation, there's this relief that suddenly comes. A sense of there's hope. Now, maybe some of you have traveled like me, and, you know, the, the, the worst nightmare of any traveler is you come out of the baggage claim, you've been through customs, you come out of the baggage claim, you're in this country that you don't know and you don't speak the language, and no one's there to meet you. And if you go to Russia, you're, in, you're just hit by about 35 guys named Igor wanting to take you in their taxi to wherever. Okay, so it's like, you know, feeding frenzy at the shark pool. Then, there's a sense of relief and hope when suddenly someone shows up and they have this little piece of paper and it has your name written across it. There's hope. You think, I'm going to get away from all these Igors. This man suddenly sees who is the most important person. It's Jesus. He's the one I need to go to. Now, here's where Jesus changes the whole perspective of the story. Everything focuses on the disciples, and Jesus changes the thrust with one question. What are you arguing about with them? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a class. I'm assuming many people have been in the classroom. Uh, Some of you have maybe been to Bible college, or for those of us who have been to seminary, Boy, you put a question like that on the table and there'll be 15 people, right, jumping out of their seats wanting to answer that question. They want to tell they want to tell Jesus, you know, hey, hey, call on me. Not one of the disciples answers. See, you got to watch what Mark is doing. The only person that answers is a voice that is unknown from the crowd at this point. Someone from the crowd answered him. Verse 17. And that's where we learn quickly that who's speaking is the father of this demon-possessed boy. In fact, it's so important to Mark that he's going to repeat this four times for you. Verse 18, verse 20, verse 22, and verse 26. You see, the answer, the response to Jesus' question elicits, draws out the person who's most important in this story. And it's not the disciples And it's not the demon-possessed boy. It's the Father. Jesus is going after the Father. Now watch, he immediately starts to work with this distressed Father. And when he hears his answer, Jesus seemingly gets caught up in this godly tirade. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? This isn't one of those, I mean, I... I give up. I've had it with you people. I'm out of here. No. What Jesus is doing is it's a hard cry because he's so angry at what sin can do in this world. And you know what that's like. The devastation that sin wreaks in a person's life, whether physically, spiritually, or emotionally. Jesus wants people to put their faith and trust in him. You see, we don't often recognize that Jesus is present Truly present here, right now with us. And his impact, 
an influence on our lives. We may not think, we may struggle to believe that he's present, but that doesn't change the reality of the fact that he is present. I was driving with my wife in Philadelphia, and we have really good friends who have followed with us from Philadelphia for a number of years. So I said to my wife, call John and Sue, because we should stop by and see them. My wife does not like to talk on the telephone. Okay, so I have, she has a cell phone, but she doesn't use it. Sometimes I tell her she can actually turn it on. That's a joke. Okay. So, um, I said, no, no, I don't want to call those people. You know, I said, no, call them now. I mean, this is, this is great. This is, it's 12 o'clock. They're probably home. We can get them. He might be home for lunch, so on and so forth. No, no, no. So we have this sort of, you know, gracious marital discussion. Later that day, we went, we stopped by, and we saw John and Sue. And we walk in the door, and John says, Oh, David, you have got to listen to this message that I got on my answering machine. I mean, it is hilarious. You know what happened, don't you? She hit the button while we were talking. And she dialed John and Sue's number. So John and Sue have this whole discussion on their answering machine. Now, the good thing that John said is you didn't say anything bad and you didn't use any foul language. <laughs> but, you see, it, you, you don't think you're connected and you are connected. You may not think that Jesus is here, but he is here. You see, he is truly present. And in our world today, you see, people don't sense that. They think Jesus is some sort of ethereal spirit floating around. In our ministry in France, we used to do um, outreach events, and some of you have heard about those. And we used to do a lot of sketches. And one of the sketches that we loved to do was called Jesus at the Bus Stop. And you just see these two guys standing up on the, on the stage, and the one guy is obviously kind of agitated, and he keeps looking down the street and he's checking his watch and everything. And the other guy comes up and he says to him, Don't worry, the bus will be here in about 17 minutes. Had a flat tire about three blocks up. And the other guy turns and says, what are you, some kind of Jesus or something? And the response is, yeah, that's me. You got it right. And the whole dialogue goes based on this guy thinking the other guy is a Looney Tunes from the Psychiatric Institute because he can't believe that Jesus would actually and really be present with him in this life. But that's what Mark is pushing us to. Jesus is here. Jesus is at the center of the story. So Jesus changes the whole perspective by taking it off of the disciples, off of the demon-possessed boy, and he puts it on the Father, the desperate, anxious, worried Father. Now here comes the storm before the calm. Verse 20. They brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now, this is great. This is typical Mark. Okay, we're going right down the normal pattern. You can look in earlier in chapter 1, 21, 28, where there's the demon-possessed man in the temple. And as soon as the Spirit recognizes Jesus in chapter 1, he speaks to Jesus. But again, watch what Mark does here. Instead of speaking... This spirit tries to destroy 
the image of God in this boy. He throws him on the ground, doubles him over in convulsions. This isn't just some little temper tantrum that your five-year-old throws. This is major attempt by the evil one to demonstrate his power. You see, God's active presence in our lives can often cause conflict before it will cause peace. The message of Jesus Christ can have the same effect in the lives of people today because it's not the message they're expecting. They're expecting to hear a message, life is then, come to Jesus. But Jesus says, you want life? Come to me and die. That is not what most people are wanting to hear. So why should we be surprised when people do not receive the words of God with open arms the first time we share it with them? But now here is where Jesus is going to show us how through storm, trouble, conflict, he will bring this man up onto what I call the bridge or walkway of faith and lead him to himself. See, normally, now normally when I read this text, what I look at, what I focus on is the whole battle between the disciples and this demon-possessed person. This is spiritual warfare, as we would say. But that's not where Mark is going. Because Mark puts his emphasis on the one person who Jesus is after. And it's the Father. Mark is great at this. He loves to show you how Jesus is concerned not just with the masses, but with that individual person. He opens up a conversation with the Father and gradually leads him to the place where his only hope is to believe in Jesus. See, Jesus asks the simple question, verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? Now, again, just keep the scenario in mind. Okay? Imagine, you know how it is when your five-year-old is throwing a tantrum or you're babysitting for some kid and he's throwing a tantrum on the floor and you're trying to hold a conversation on your phone with, you know, your friend? It, It just doesn't go real well. Here's Jesus. The boy is convulsing, rolling in the dirt. And Jesus says, so, how long has he been like this? Now, if you were the father, what would you be doing? You'd be screaming. You're like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, do something. Jesus knew the answer to that question. He had already heard the description of what was going on, verse 17 and 18. He saw with his own eyes, verse 20, how the spirit tormented this boy. But Jesus is entering into this man's world. He's demonstrating a compassion that goes beyond anything we could imagine. This man who's at his wit's end, shattered, reactions are nothing more than his desperate effort to get something for himself is shown that his only hope is to cast himself into Jesus' arms. So now the father reaches the time of ultimate frustration. Verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see, in chapter 1, when the leper came to Jesus, he knew that Jesus was able to heal him, but he didn't know if Jesus wanted to heal him. Okay? In this text, this man does not know if Jesus is able to heal his son, and he doesn't know if Jesus desires to heal his son. It all goes back to that first question. How long has this been happening to him? 
the door of this man's heart begins to open. And then there's that famous statement that we all know. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 23, there is no question of what Jesus wants to do. But all things are possible does not mean that anything we ask for, Jesus will do. It means that as you put your trust in him and in his character, he is capable and wanting to work in our lives. Still, Jesus has done nothing. He's holding a conversation with this man. All the time, the father is just in disbelief. I mean, what is, when is God going to act? You see, that's the heart cry of many people in our world today. Many of my friends, many of my neighbors in France ask that question all the time. If your God is the way you describe him, why isn't he doing something? But you see, the storm comes before the calm because God uses the storm to draw us to himself, to bring us up to that bridge, that walkway, and show us there's only one way. There's only one hope. His desire is to lead people to bet everything on Jesus. That's the final point. The faith risk. Verse 24. The me, the father of the child cried out, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. The tiny bit of faith put into action demonstrates that the father has come to the point where he recognizes there is nothing left for me. All I can do is give it to him. This man has gone way beyond the boundaries. He has risked moving to the disciples, asking for their help. He, I don't know what his social status is. We don't know. We're not given any indication. But in the midst of all the religious authorities and scribes, it's him that speaks up and says in response to the question, what are you arguing about? He responds. He pleads his case with Jesus. I mean, what more could he do? He talks so easily of his son's situation, but in the end, he must cry out, calling on Jesus. His only five words in Greek. I believe. Help my unbelief. Or as it's translated in the message, I believe. Help me with my doubts. That's the heart cry of a man who finally admits that he lacks the resources and chooses to turn to Jesus. Now, it's not that he finally works up enough faith to believe in Jesus. It's that he finally understands that he is spiritually bankrupt. And the only thing he can do is cling to Jesus and hold on to him. He's admitting that I don't have what it takes. And the only person that can help me is Jesus. There's no other way. These are the last words we hear out of this man's mouth. It was not the miracle healing of the son that was important. It was the heart change that he underwent and that he found Jesus worthy of the risk that he took. Now, when the disciples come at the end and they, they get together with Jesus, you know, they don't, even, they don't really even care about this man. They wonder, why couldn't we cast this out? What was the problem? Where is the connection? What plug wasn't plugged in? Why wasn't my internet working? 
And Jesus' response is so telling because he says, This kind cannot be chosen or driven out by anything but prayer. And what Jesus is doing is pushing his disciples to recognize that it is all about total, total dependence on him. You're not going to do this by your own power. Nothing you can do, you can do by your own power. Only by Jesus. You see where Jesus is going? Jesus is the one who seeks us. When we seek God, we create a God that we construct out of our own minds. We like this, we don't like this, we'll take this kind of God, we don't like that kind of God. Uh, My French friends are great at that. They kind of build their own Jesus. Here, the message is that God comes seeking us. He comes after us. He works in us. He creates confusion, trouble, conflict, whatever it takes to draw us to himself so that we would cast everything down and say, there's only you. There's only you. So when Jesus is real, when his presence is real in our lives, in this community, it's like a ripple effect going out to people around us. It's not a simple walk in the woods. It's an incredible adventure or journey where God consistently amazes us. He can sometimes bother us. But always he's looking to put us face to face with whether we will cast everything, bet everything on him, that it is all worth the trust that we put in him. Now let me just give you three ideas to leave you with. One, when you talk with God, talk with him as you would with your father, with a friend, with a parent. Oftentimes when I hear myself pray, I don't talk with my father the way I talk to my heavenly father. And Jesus is conversing with this man. it's 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 a metaphor, it's an image of prayer. This man is crying out. He's got this desperate sense to what he's saying. And God wants us to talk with him in that way. Read the Psalms. So talk to God as your heavenly father. Talk to him as you would your own father. Second, dare to envision what the real presence of Jesus in you, in this community of believers, might look like. And what impact that might have. It's amazing. You know, I always thought that, you know, I have to tell people that I'm a believer. And especially when you're overseas. But I recognize that many times God is already at work. He was already there before you got there, by the way. So if you go to Lebanon or you go to Paris, France, God has already been there. And what that means is that people are watching you. You may not think that, but they are. I'll never forget my neighbor. This guy is as, I mean, he is as far from Jesus as could, you could possibly be. He's a very nice guy, very friendly, always chit-chats with me. So one day I'm standing outside there talking with him, and he says, uh, Now, David, you're one of those. Like a one of what? Because, you know, one of those brothers. Now, he used brothers. He didn't use the word Christian. 
but I got the sense he was, he was getting close to that. So he says, you're one of those brothers, aren't you? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, see this friend of mine over here? And he had another friend standing by his car, and it was an African fellow. And he said, um, he said, he's one of those. He's a brother. And I go over and I talk to this guy, and this guy is a solid, sold-out believer for Jesus. And I'm thinking, I have never said anything to this guy that I'm a Christian. God is at work. You see, he is working, so he knows. So he is putting around this guy different people, and he is obviously picking up the noise that's going around that there's something different about this neighbor of yours, David. So dare to envision. See, God is present, and he's working, and he's already out letting your neighbors and your friends know, if you haven't said it, something is different about you, and they want to know. And finally, don't make the journey of faith for others. You know what I mean by that? Learn how to share the gospel, ask good questions that make others think, and reflect in their hearts, and then let God do his work. You can never bring someone to Jesus. See, if you bring someone to Jesus, then that means you have the power to do that. God is the one that changes people's hearts. God uses our testimony, uses our witness. But we don't make the faith journey for people. God does that. So learn to share the gospel. Learn how to give and to explain what Jesus means to you. And help them reflect by asking good questions. But ultimately, let God lead them. Let God bring them up on that walkway, that bridge of faith between a fragile humanity and a creator God, and let him lead them. I always am amazed by that verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May God help us to see how Jesus seeks people. Sometimes he uses all different ways to bring them to himself, but that Jesus is asking us to risk everything by putting our trust in him. That's what our lives are about. That's what mission is about. That's what this whole journey with Jesus is about. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you know and love us more than we could ever imagine. And that, as the song said earlier, there is a longing in every heart to know you. There is a a void within every human heart that seeks to know, is there someone who loves me as you have said you loved us? May you make us to be those witnesses who can share freely the message of Christ and allow you to work in people's lives. That's our prayer. So we ask that you would help us to be those witnesses both here and around the world for your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.